How many of you have read the book or seen the film recently, Wonder? Anybody out there seen that? Yeah, good. This, this half more so. You guys need to read Wonder. It's a really good book. Uh, for those who haven't read Wonder, it's, it's a book uh, about a boy named Augie. And Augie is about to start middle school, having never been to public school or private school in his whole life. He's been homeschooled. Um, here's an excerpt from, uh, from the book. I've never been to a real school before. I'm pretty much totally and completely petrified. People think I haven't gone to school because of the way I look, but it's not that. It's because of all the surgeries I've had, 27 since I was born. The bigger, the bigger ones happened before I was even four years old, so I don't remember those, but I've had two or three surgeries every year since then, some big, some small, and because I'm little for my age and I have some other medical mysteries that the doctors never really figured out, I used to get sick a lot. That's why my parents decided it was better if I didn't go to school. I'm much stronger now, though. The last surgery I had was eight months ago, and I probably won't have any more for another couple of years. Starting middle school is difficult for most people, but for Augie, it was terrifying, and unfortunately for him, as he started school, most of his fears were were realized. Um, Kids stared at him, and some kids thought because he was deformed in his face that he was also uh, mentally delayed, not smart, not cool, all of these kinds of things. Um, Other kids were just downright mean to him. But there was one boy named Jack Will, yes, two first names, and Jack Will befriended Augie. They hung out after school, they talked Star Wars, they were goofballs together, they did what middle school boys do. Um, Jack Will admits in the book, it's told from his perspective, one of the chapters, that Augie is difficult on the eyes. But he also said that once he got to know how smart and funny and kind Augie was, he stopped paying attention to the outward appearance of his friend. But then something happened. It was Halloween, a day that Augie loved because it was the one day of the year where it was okay to wear a mask to school. And on that day, he got to act and feel like anybody else because nobody could see his real face. So no, no one knew it was him when he came to school. All of his th- friends thought he was gonna be wearing a Django Fett outfit, but at the last minute, he switched it to one of those scream faces with blood coming out, okay? So here's the story. Walking through the halls that morning on my way to the lockers was, I have to say, absolutely awesome. Everything was different now. I was different. Where I usually walked in with my head down, trying to avoid being seen, today I walked with my head up, looking around. I wanted to be seen, One kid wearing the exact same costume as mine, long white skull face oozing fake red blood, high-fived me as we passed each other on the stairs. I have no idea who he was, and he had no idea who I was, and I wondered for a second if he would have ever done that if he had seen beneath the mask. I was starting to think this was going to be one of the best days in the history of my life, but then I got to homeroom. The first costume I saw as I walked inside the door was Darth Sidious. It had one of those rubber masks that are so realistic, with with a big black hood over the head and a long black robe. I knew right away it was Julian. He's one of the mean kids. He must have changed his costume at the last minute because he thought I was coming as Django Fett. He was talking to two mummies who must have been Miles and Henry, and they were all kind of looking at the door like they were waiting for someone to come through it. 
I knew it wasn't a bleeding scream they were looking for because I was supposed to come as Boba Fett, or it was Boba Fett. Anyway, I was going to go and sit at my usual desk, but for some reason, I don't know why, I found myself walking over to a desk near them, and I could hear them talking. One of the mummies was saying, it really does look like him. Like this part especially, answered Julian's voice as he put his fingers on the cheeks and the eyes of Darth Sidious's mask. Actually, said the mummy, what it really looks like is one of those shrunken heads. Have you ever seen one of those? He looks exactly like that. I think he looks like an orc. Oh, yeah. If I look like that, said the Julian voice, kind of laughing, I swear I'd put a hood over my face every day. I've thought about this a lot, said the second mummy, sounding serious, and I really think if I looked like him seriously, I'd kill myself. You would not, answered Darth Sidious. Yeah, for real, insisted, insisted the mummy. I can't imagine looking in the mirror every day and seeing myself like that. It would be too awful and getting stared at all the time. Then why do you hang out with him so much, asked Darth Sidious. I don't know, answered the mummy. The principal asked me to hang out with him at the beginning of the year. He must have told all the teachers to put us next to each other all, in all of our classes or something. The mummy shrugged. I knew the shrug, of course. I knew the voice. I knew I wanted to run out of the class right then and there. But I stood where I was and I listened to Jack Will finish what he was saying. I mean, the thing is, he always just follows me around. What am I supposed to do? Just ditch him, Julian said. I don't know what Jack answered because I walked out of the class without anyone knowing I'd been there. My face felt like it was on fire and I walked back down the stairs. I was sweating under my costume and I started crying. You will cry if you see that movie. Few things hurt in life worse than being betrayed. Whenever we entrust our hearts to someone else, we make ourselves vulnerable to betrayal and pain. And yet, the catch-22 is if we don't ever open up, if we don't become vulnerable, we can't truly experience love. The greater you love, the greater the risk and Jesus loved more deeply, more fully, more completely than anyone I have ever read about and anyone I have ever known. His life and his character, for Christians at least, have, has become the definition really of love. And it means that to be betrayed, I think, for him would be so painful. During this Lenten season, we have been walking through a sermon series called The Direction of Glory. We have seen Jesus showing us that the direction of glory is not up but down. It's not toward power and prestige, uh, but it's toward the cross. And this evening, we're going to be rooted in a story where Jesus continues down the road of glory and encounters the pain of betrayal. Would you stand as we read the Gospel of Luke? Chapters 22 or chapter 22, uh, 56 through 65. Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting around them. 
And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat down at the firelight and looking intently at him, said, this man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, you're one of them too. But Peter said, man, I am not. About an hour had passed, and another man began to insist, saying, certainly this man was also with him, for he's a Galilean too. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him And they blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, Prophecy, who is the one who is striking you? And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. Lord, thank you for enduring this for us. Thank you for being love for us. In this preaching moment, I pray that you would do what you want to do in us. That you would speak to us through this word and help us to receive it well. Amen. You may be seated. My motivation for telling this story is simple it's because it actually happened. You know, sometimes it's important to say that in church. We preach these things because they happened. Um, All of us, me included, are so used to teachers and pastors and preachers reading through these texts and mining them for principles and practical applications that we forget sometimes that these events actually happened, that they're worth reading and preaching about because they're historical. This event took place in the early first century in Jerusalem and involved Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world who took on flesh and dwelt among us. And it involved a Galilean fisherman, Peter, who was one of his closest friends and one of his disciples. As we walk through the story, I want us to just try and imagine what it might have been like to be in Jesus' situation and to feel what it might be like to be in Peter's dilemma. Here's the scene. Jesus had just been betrayed with the kiss of greeting from his friend and disciple Judas up at the Mount of Olives where Jesus was praying in the night. Judas is the one who led a mob of temple guards and religious leaders to arrest Jesus. And as we pick up the story this evening, Jesus has, uh, is led from the Mount of Olives, armed guards taking him into custody toward the home of the high priest. And the text says that Peter was following at a distance. Now, you can read into that whatever you like. There's whole sermons on that. I'll leave that for you to do on your own time. Peter following at a distance. 
So they brought Jesus to the house of the high priest and, and Peter joins the gathering group of servants and, and the remnants of the mob who were there with the priesthood. It, it, to me, it's always a weird thing to conceptualize what they're talking about because um, well, we live in a very cold climate in the wintertime and, and so when we have people over to our homes, usually they are all inside the house. So if you imagine, oh, they're at the high priest's house. I wonder if they brought Jesus into the garage and then everyone, so let's just look at the, the thing here, Joe. Um, we should have a picture, there we go. So that's kind of a rendition of, of a typical um, home in the ancient Near East, in, in Israel, Palestine area. This is a very modest home. The high priest would have a little bigger home, but you can see it's walled on the outside. And many of us have been to places like this, even in Latin American places, a lot of times we have courtyards like this. So um, you, you see the courtyard out there, and then there's, there's the inside of the house, and there's the roof of the house. Now the next picture is actually um, a little larger place. This might be more akin to the high priest's home. It would be a wealthier person's place. And you can see these, um, those porticos on the outside. So Jesus might have been held um, chained to one of those or in a room right off of the courtyard. And it says that the fire was, was kindled uh, in the middle of the courtyard. So you can imagine the scene now. Jesus is brought in with this mob and, and maybe put under one of those porticos, chained up or into a chamber with an opening. And then Peter and the, the mob and the servants of this high priest are, are in that type of courtyard. They're warming themselves around a fire so they can sort of hear what's going on. And in fact, Matthew's gospel gives us the detail that Peter even went there so he could find out what happens to Jesus. Okay, thanks Joe. There's Peter sitting by the fire of this company of people who had arrested Jesus. And, and I gotta think, Peter went there because he cared, but he's also confused. Things were not turning out as he had imagined. He'd seen Jesus walking on water and multiplying food and raising people from the dead. And you gotta think, this isn't how it's gonna end if you're Peter. And I think that's often the way it is for us, right? We start things with good intentions, whether it's a job or friendship or a marriage or following Jesus. And we enter into these relationships, into these commitments with optimism and a vision for how things are going to go. We all think, well, most of us, unless you're super pessimistic, think that things are gonna go pretty good. I'm gonna marry this person or I'm gonna be best friends with this person or I'm gonna be just the, Jesus is the best and my life's gonna be better now. Everything's gonna go well. But inevitably, there are twists and turns that we can't foresee. Challenges, right? Pain, choices to make. And these, these things disorient us. And they have an opportunity every time to weaken our resolve, to cause us to doubt that we really made the right choice. And it seems like that's what's happening to Peter in the story. He's there, warming himself, trying to figure out what just happened and what was going to happen to Jesus. Can you picture yourself there at the scene? What does that look like? When I picture it, I'm wearing fingerless gloves and the fire's in a 55-gallon, it's rusty, 55-gallon drum. I don't know why. Like, yes, before you protest, I know that there were no 55-gallon drums and likely no fingerless gloves, but that's just my scene. I don't know if some scene from The Wire or Trading Places or something like that. I don't know. This is Anyway, if you get it in your head that you're around this fire, and you know how those times when you're kind of in shock over something and you just kind of like, well, I do this, like just kind of stare at the flames. 
things are going on, and you're just like, what just happened? And you're just kind of watching the flames lick the side of the can or whatever it is, the, the brazier. And maybe you're strained, straining to overhear the charges being brought against Jesus. Like, what is going on? This isn't how it's supposed to be. Peter's fireside moment comes to an abrupt end. Awakened from his shock stare, Peter's likely, his adrenaline glands go, I looked it up, Chad, they're right over your kidneys, right? Your adrenal glands, and they automatically that pupil's dilating, fight or flight. He hears his name or he hears someone address him. What would trigger such a reaction? Why would his adrenaline pump? Why would Peter be awakened? Was there a wild animal on the loose in the courtyard or an armed guard staring down at him? No. Peter's shaken by the words in very clear Greek of a little girl, a little servant girl. It may not have been right, but back in those days, a woman, let alone a girl, let alone a servant girl, could not bring, be a witness against a man, could not bring a charge against a man. And yet here, this servant girl says, hey, you were with him too, right? It didn't take much to take Peter the rock and make him falter and wilt under pressure. Whether it be fight or flight or some other knee-jerk excuse, Peter denied her claim unequivocally, not merely denying that he had been with Jesus like she said, you were with him too, but denying that he even knew Jesus in the first place. Hours earlier, in the privacy and company of Jesus and the rest of the disciples, Peter had vowed to Jesus he was prepared to both go to prison and to death with him. But here in public, at the mere accusation of a servant girl, Peter's loyalty wilts away. How often do our good intentions wilt and falter when the accusation or the situation arises? I'm not talking about denying Jesus in public, like that's kind of less of a deal. But I'm talking about all of our loyalties to our friends and spouses and colleagues, loyalty to yourself. Have you ever been tempted or done something that really is a sin against your own dignity? Peter's failure may have been able to be explained away as a momentary act of weakness. After all, he was surprised at her accusation in a moment when he was emotionally drained. It happens. We get it. But as the story progresses in Luke's gospel, the case against Peter is strengthened. A little after uh, this, this event, another person noticed Peter, this time a man who said, you're one of them too. To which Peter replies, man, I am not. I don't know how he said it. Sounded, yeah, it would sound definitely weirder than that. But this time, Peter denies that he's one of them, right? First time he denies he knows Jesus. Now he denies that he's one of them, one of those disciples of Jesus, one of those churchgoers, one of those kids who can't play in the soccer game or go to the birthday party because they've got worship, or one of those people who claim to have different sexual ethics than others, or one of those people who, one of those people who don't fit into the boxes and identities that the world has laid out for us so neatly. You ever find yourself not fitting? You're not quite all Republican, you're not quite all Democrat, 
You're not quite all conservative. You're not quite all liberal. You're not quite what everyone wants to cookie cutter and make you. Following Jesus will do that. It will break boxes and, and blur lines and it'll cause you to question a lot of things. How tempting is it sometimes when we're weak in the right situation to just blend in How tempting it is to just make following Jesus a private affair where it can be safely and conveniently isolated on its own, in its own compartment. Who wants all that messiness of Jesus to spill in into the rest of my world? Anyway, about an hour after Peter's second denial, another man began to insist that, Pi, uh, that, that Peter is in cahoots with Jesus. Hey, he must pick up on some thing about Peter, either his outward dress or his accent, but he understands that Peter is from Galilee. Galilee was north of Jerusalem, a bit more rural, that's an understatement, than the big city, and people knew that Jesus was from Nazareth, which is in the region of Galilee and that he had to some, some of his disciples were from there too. And so this time Peter replies in a way that we could almost imagine as exasperation. Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And then three significant events take place. First, the rooster crows. Immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. The last time we heard the words, immediately while he was still speaking, it was verse 47 of this same chapter. Jesus was telling the disciples to pray that they not enter into temptation. And then it says, while he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the 12, was preceding them. The last time we heard the words, Jesus was betrayed by a close disciple. This time, Peter becomes aware that Jesus was right. Jesus knew that Peter would be tempted. He knew that even though Peter would claim to follow him into death, unto death, in reality, Peter would deny him three times before the rooster even crowed that morning. I've got to imagine the remorse laid heavy on Peter. Peter had thought probably, that all was lost. He was so sad and confused that he tried to preserve himself when his close friend, his Lord, was suffering beatings and mockery and false accusations. By the way, false accusations that Peter could have stood up against as a witness. You know who else was there, don't you? John. That's another sermon, but John, the evangelist, is also in this crowd. Two witnesses Legally accessible as witnesses when you have two, they could have stood by Jesus. When that rooster crowed, Peter must have remembered that Jesus said all this was going to happen. Jesus said he would be handed over. Jesus said he would be beaten and mocked. Jesus said Peter would deny him and Jesus was right. Like, this has got to be all coming into his mind. You know, you might feel like your life is out of control. You might be feeling like you're in a situation that involves suffering and loss, failure, betrayal. I think part of the good news of this passage is that Jesus knows he has not abandoned us. 
He told us in John 16, for example, just one example, that in this world we would have problems, but take heart, he's overcome the world. This, this has reminded me this week, so I'll just share what it's reminded me of. Our hope is not that there will be justice now, although we should pray for it and strive for it. The two are not mutually exclusive. Our hope is not that death is defeated now, but we're gonna pray for healing in about 15 minutes. And we should be at work out there advocating for people who are needlessly suffering and dying. Our hope is not that we would achieve the American dream or some version of heaven on earth. Our hope is that our struggle matters. Our hope is that in Jesus, all things will be made new when he reappears and brings his kingdom in full. That's where our hope is. The whole earth suffers groaning and pain, waiting for this new age. Suffering is part of the process, but suffering without purpose or without hope is unbearable. You know that feeling. But when it's all aiming at something, when Jesus has promised to tie all of it together, what does Paul say? That he, the good news is that when Jesus sums up all things in himself, all the loose storylines, all the things you thought were just banal suffering that never mattered for anything, Jesus will weave that into beauty. I think that happened when the rooster crowed, some form of that rushing into Peter's mind. The second thing that happens is that Jesus sees Peter. The rooster is crowed and their eyes meet. If you imagine that courtyard again, you see Jesus, Peter by the fire, Jesus possibly in one of those porticos and their eyes connect. Jesus chained Bloody, alone, not alone because there's not people around, but he's alone surrounded by people representing a system of oppression. There's people like that today that feel alone and surrounded by a system of oppression. It's not the first time that Peter has become aware that Jesus sees him. You remember the first time? Probably not, Luke chapter five. Luke chapter five, Peter's been fishing all night, comes in tired, likely defeated, caught nothing. Jesus tells Peter to go back out, put his nets on the other side of the boat. I mean, for a professional fisherman, a ridiculous request. The type of fish that they were fishing for in the Sea of Galilee didn't bite in the day using linen nets like these fishermen used. We've talked about this before, but anyway, he goes back out because he's showing deference and respect to Jesus, this famous or, or burgeoning in fame traveling rabbi. Peter kind of has heard about Jesus. They've met before. They've done some things before, so he's going to go out and do what Jesus says. And you probably know the story. Massive catch. Nets are breaking. Friends are coming to help. Peter brings in this massive haul, and then it says these words, but when Simon Peter saw he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. No, what did Jesus see? Or what did Peter see? That's what I'm saying. There, there's no object in the sentence. 
So it doesn't say or imply when Peter saw the massive catch, he fell down at Jesus' feet. And it doesn't say or imply when, G- when Peter saw he was witness to a miracle, he fell down at Jesus' feet. What it says literally, when Peter saw, he fell down at Jesus' feet. What did he see? I think Peter saw that Jesus was more than just a teacher. And I think he saw that Jesus saw him. When Isaiah the prophet was in the presence of God, he fell on his face and confessed his sinfulness. In the same way, Peter recognizes that he has been seen by more than just a teacher. He was in the presence of the holy. He was exposed and he was humbled by this. But then he received grace from Jesus, didn't he? Jesus' gaze is a gaze of grace. Back in Luke chapter five, Peter realizes he's been seen, he's been pierced, he's been laid bare, all of his sin and stuff, and Jesus shows him grace. But now, now, after what, almost three years, I think chronologically, Peter's been with Jesus after he was first extended grace. He's learned from Jesus. Jesus has told him all the stuff that's gonna happen and Peter still denies him. Their eyes lock, he's seen again. Do you ever have that doubt? Like, is there a point to where Jesus won't forgive me anymore? Like, does Jesus ever just say, I'm sick of trusting you because you keep betraying me? Does Jesus ever say, you keep letting me down? Enough. Now, I've searched the scriptures. I've read widely and in some areas deeply about the transformative work of Jesus in people. I have never met or read about a follower of Jesus who was honest with the state of their heart that didn't also grow in grace with each passing year, realizing the all-sufficient, graceful gaze of Jesus. The more mature and healthy a follower of Jesus is, this has been my experience, the more gracious they are. It's usually the old grouchy ones that are always judging people that have not received the grace of Jesus well themselves. I don't wanna be the old grumpy guy. The gaze of Jesus says, I see you, I know you wholly and completely, and I love you. So I think this gaze, this catching of the eye between Jesus and Peter was a vulnerable, was a moving experience, but I think there's more to it than that. I think that the rooster crow and the gaze of grace would have triggered Peter's memory of something that Jesus had said to him earlier. Simon, Simon, Behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have uh, returned again, will strengthen your brothers. Satan had demanded permission, however that works. Read Job, it's weird. Um, (laughs) Satan, the great enemy, basically, Jesus is saying, wants to take you down, Peter. But I've prayed for you that you may not fail. 
in English, it doesn't sound like anything unusual, but in Greek, of course, I've got some kind of thing I'm gonna pull out, right? But uh, in, in Greek, it's a sentence that's unique in the New Testament, and here's why. Usually when Jesus prays in the Gospel of Luke, he uses the word, or the word used is pros okay? But there's another word for prayer that occurs 22 times in the New Testament, and the word is deomai, say deomai. Deomai, and it's to beg, it's to implore, it's to pray desperately. People who are begging Jesus to do something for them, like the father who, with the little girl who is dying, right? Sick people begging Jesus to heal them. Demons use the word deomai when they're in, the, the, he comes to um, the Gerasenes, right? And they're begging, deomai-ing uh, Jesus to let them go into the swine instead of being casting to the abyss. It's this desperate plea. And in all the New Testament, Jesus never deomize. He just does regular prayer. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he is so impassioned and so distressed, he is, he's burst capillaries in his face and is sweating blood. He does not use this word uh, to describe his prayer. But he uses it one place, and of course, he uses it here. He's begging the Father for Peter's salvation, that his faith may not fail. He's begging on behalf of one of his closest friends and disciples in, in the moment of great need. Is this not why Jesus came? He came because he knows we need help, and he died because he knows we're sinners in need of forgiveness and redemption. Jesus came to rescue. Jesus begged for Peter's salvation, and through his actions, he's begged for you and I too. That's what the cross tells me. Sin and death do not have the last word when Jesus is in the picture. And he's the one who, after his resurrection, restored Peter to faith and gave him a place as one of his apostles. And Jesus is the one who restores you and restores me as well. How do we receive that gift of restoration and healing? Peter shows us where to start through the third action of vital importance after his betrayal. He left weeping. He was genuinely sorrowful. The fancy word for that is penitent. And it's through a humble heart, a penitent heart before the Lord, a heart that says, Lord, I need you, forgive me. That's how to begin following Jesus and that's how to continue following Jesus. You know, somewhere along the road, we fell into this trap where it's okay to be there when you start following Jesus, but after a while, you're supposed to have all your stuff together. I'm I would never speak against maturity. That's something that we're all trying to do. But I will speak flatly against the lie that we don't need Jesus desperately every day. Pray with me. Lord, in so many ways we identify with Peter in, uh, in his betrayal of you, his, his weakness. How could we not? And I thank you, I thank you for the good news that if you could so 
forgive Peter and restore him through a direct act of, of betrayal and treachery. I pray that that would encourage me and my sisters and brothers to know your love can meet and cover our sin and our shame. And I pray whether uh, we are following you for the first time today or continuing on the road, that we be able to fully hand over to you uh, our sin and trust you with it, trust you to forgive us and to make us whole and to make us new. I pray that you would meet with us now in this time of healing prayer, that this would be part of the process of making us whole, whether it's emotionally, spiritually, physically. Lord, come meet with us now. Amen.